Let me pray and then we'll, we'll get into that. Um, Father, thank you so much for your word and thank you for um, even the strange bits, um, what we're looking at today. And Father, I pray that your spirit would guide us through it. Um, Lord, please give us real insight and uh, fill us with joy. Um, fill us with a real sense of joy as we, as we look at it today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are looking at the book of Revelation, which is a, quite a strange book if you've never read it before. It's filled with all these really like powerful, vivid images, and all of them are meant to give us sort of heaven's perspective about what's happening here on earth or be a vivid description of the kinds of things that are happening in heaven. So there are some pretty strong and powerful images, so just be ready for that. But if you were here, um, I guess it'd be about six weeks ago when we started looking at the book of Revelation. Uh, you might remember we started out by saying that the word hallelujah, do you know that word hallelujah? Um, do you remember I said it's only used four times in the whole Bible? Four times in the whole Bible. Um, and it's all used in the chapter that was read to us. All four instances are in uh, Revelation chapter 19. Um, <clears throat> also, um, that is a word that transcends all cultures. Uh, that's a word that is used in uh, almost every language that has Christianity in it, uses that word hallelujah to, to, to do the same thing, to praise God for something. It literally just means praise God. Almost every language on earth uses that, that old Hebrew word. Um, and uh, I, was, uh, I, was, I just got back yesterday from Estonia. I was in Estonia. Um, and uh, just in case you don't know where it is, or in case you've never heard of it, and you think I'm making it up, it's that one on the top up there. Um, I didn't want you to think that I went to the country that is in the Princess Diaries, in case you've never heard of it. It's a real place, and that's where it is. Um, I'll leave it to you to decide whether or not I've ever seen that movie. It's up to you. Um, but while I was there, I was able to put that theory to, to the test. Does every language on earth use that word to say the same thing? And uh, arguably, Estonian is the most difficult language to learn on earth. They were telling me that um, there are 12 ways to say every noun, um, and it's all dependent on the context of the sentence and all that. 12 ways to say every noun. And uh, so I put the theory to the test. Do they really sing and say hallelujah in every culture and language? Uh, has it really transcended everywhere? And sure enough, I was preaching in a church there on Sunday morning, which, by the way, um, I wore a jacket. <laughs> Because they, they kind of told me to wear a suit, and I was like, oh, I don't know, how about I just wear a jacket? So I wore a jacket, so um, if, you ask, if you ask enough, maybe I'll wear one for you guys one day. But, you know, you can put down a comment card at the end. I want the pastor to wear a jacket. Um, if enough of you say it, then I will. Uh, but I was a little bit concerned that I wasn't going to be able to engage in the worship, because, of course, they'd be singing in Estonian. But then, sure enough, the very first song, we stand to sing the very first song, and right there in the chorus, hallelujah. They sang hallelujah. And so there you go. It's, it's anecdotal evidence, uh, but evidence nonetheless that this one word, hallelujah, used only four times in the Bible, uh, is the one word that has transcended every language and culture on earth. And today we come to the passage where that word is used, where it's introduced to us. And uh, right at the end of your Bible, right as Jesus is securing victory over all that is evil in our world, we're introduced to this word that means praise God. And what we've been saying through this whole series is the book of Revelation, at its core, it's a book about being able to say that word, being able to say praise God, hallelujah, no matter what circumstances you're going through. 
And actually, the churches that originally sang and said hallelujah, those churches way back in the first century, were almost exclusively made up of the poor, of the exploited, the imprisoned, and the martyred. And so what does that have to say to us in Los Angeles today? Um, Because by and large, I would guess we're not poor. We're not imprisoned, exploited, martyred. Well, here's what I think it has to say. Uh, Obviously, singing or saying hallelujah is an act of worship. Literally, it's praise God, you're worshiping God. And when we worship, it doesn't really look like we're doing very much, does it? In fact, compared with everything happening in the world around us, it looks pretty insignificant and pretty inconsequential. I mean, compared to all that is happening in the world around us, think of the world events on the news, think of uh, maybe the glamour of celebrities and influencers, think of the polarizing debates raging in our society right now. Think about all of that, all of the noise from all of that, all of the activity. And then what could be significant or consequential about a group of Christians gathering in an old building to sing songs and read scripture together? But surely it's a waste of time to to sing songs and hand around uh, some bread and a cup, uh, even more so when the bread and cup that we hand around is sort of packaged like this. And how inconsequential does that seem? But the more we become aware of the catastrophes and the brokenness in the world around us, the more it seems on the surface that gathering to worship is almost an absurd response. And yet, here we are. Here we are. Every Sunday. And not just us here, but in hundreds, maybe thousands of churches across our city. In hundreds of thousands, if not millions of churches around the world. Now, what today's passage is going to show us is that worshiping and saying hallelujah actually is the most potent, the most significant, the most consequential thing that we can do in our society today. And that even though it looks weak, it really is strong. And it's simply because the one whom we worship is the mighty one. He's the warrior who defeats all that is evil and broken in this world with a simple word from his mouth. Did you notice that in the reading? It says he defeats them with the sword out of his mouth. That's literally just an image of words. He defeats them with a word. And so to worship him is to ascribe worth and power and glory and honor to the only one who's worthy of our worship. And that those who worship him, they're actually taken along with him in his victory. Did you see that? They go along with him. Because here's what we're going to find, that from heaven's perspective, there is nothing that we can do that has a more powerful effect in heaven and on the earth than worship. And so let's take a look at this. Um, But first, just a really brief review of where we're up to in this really fascinating book of Revelation. And what we've been learning through this entire series is that uh, what we can see in this world, the physical world, is not all that there is. That there's another world, a spiritual world, that isn't separate from this world. And that everything that happens in that world deeply affects what happens in the physical world and vice versa. And the book of Revelation is like a peek behind the curtain into that world just to see how the unseen spiritual reality impacts the physical reality that we live in. 
And what we've been trying to do through the series is not get into every nitty-gritty detail of the book, but instead at the 30,000-foot view. And so the goal of this series is that we would be able to almost explain the structure to someone else, that, that we'd be able to do that. And so um, we've said that the books break down into three main parts. So um, there's our, our big overview, uh, that there's one set of seven, four sets of seven, and then the end. And so the first set of seven are these seven letters to seven churches. Uh, and then uh, there's four sets of seven, and those four sets all describe how the spiritual world impacts the physical world from four different camera angles. So it's all looking at the same thing, but just from four perspectives. Um, And each of those uh, four sets of seven describe the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, which will happen sometime in the future. In other words, it's talking about now. And then we've gotten through all of that, and so now we're at the third and final part of the book, the end. And that's where we are now. And what's happening in chapter 17 to 19 is we're zooming in on the last two of each set of those four sets of seven. Does that make sense? So we're like zooming in on the very end. Uh, It's like a close-up shot. We're seeing in detail what previously we've only seen from far away. And in Revelation 17, as we zoom in, we meet a woman. And uh, she's called the great prostitute. And I probably need to warn you again if you're coming today for the first time, Revelation can sound a bit strange, uh, but that's because of the type of literature it is. And so it has all these graphic images and it's meant to show actually the real gravity of the problems our world faces and the incredible glory of God in light of it. And in today's passage, the the very first image that we see is of this this very attractive woman. And so here's, here's point one. Who is the woman? Who is she? Well, take a look at her, verse four, chapter 17. It almost reads like a tabloid the day after the Emmys. Um, This, um, by the way, this is Elizabeth Olsen. Um, There she is. I did that for you, Marvel fans. Uh, And actually, that was like the most church-appropriate dress I could put up there. So Um, here, this is a quote. This is from Harper's Bazaar just a couple weeks ago during the Emmys. Um, here's, Here's how her clothing, her attire is described. Elizabeth Olsen was a vision... Get it? Some of you get that. Elizabeth Olsen was a, vi- a vision in the most simple white-sleeved gown. The actress exuded elegance in the paired-backed design, which was from her sister's fashion house, The Row, giving just a hint of sparkle in the form of some dramatic chapard earrings. Revelation chapter 17, verse 4. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand. You're supposed to read this and be attracted to her. She's dressed in such a way as it's meant to to capture our attention. But if we look closer, in fact, we get right up next to her and we look into her golden cup, we see that she is as awful as she is attractive. Look at the last part of verse four. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. And then look at verse six because it's in verse six that we see just what it is that she's drinking. I saw the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. And so this alluringly attractive woman is drunk with the blood of Christians. And so she's not beautiful. 
She's murderous. And if we look up at her face, we can see her name. Look back at verse 5. The name written on her head was a mystery. Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. And so the image here, again, this is an image, is that she's not a beautiful socialite, that she's the mother of all prostitutes. But the real significant name is actually the first line there, where she's called Babylon the Great. And remember, this book of Revelation is filled with all sorts of imagery that's meant to help us understand what's really happening behind the scenes in the world. And so this woman, she's a vivid picture of the city of Babylon. And all through the Bible, Babylon is also a vivid picture that has stood for any city or nation or philosophy that is anti-God. So anytime you read Babylon in the Bible, just think this is the anti-God city. This is the anti-God state of mind. And in verse 18, she's called the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. And so this alluring but awful woman represents every anti-God city and kingdom and nation in history and in the future. And if you read on into chapter 18, Babylon isn't only pictured as some sort of ruthless fascist kingdom. No, no, no. It's not just the ones that you can look at on the news and point at and be like, oh, what a horrible place. It's also pictured as a place you want to live. It's pictured as a kingdom filled with luxuries and merchants and capitalists. It's the kind of world that you want to live in. And actually, it's the very kind of world that we do live in. A world filled with the buying and selling of luxuries, where the trend of society is people looking to make their life as luxurious and as comfortable as possible. I um, did some counting this week. There are 76 sleeps until Christmas. Does that raise anyone's anxiety level? Only 76 until Christmas. And by the way, the media, it's already panicking. Because why? Because you and I might not be able to buy all the luxuries that we want this year for Christmas. Because what is Christmas in our culture but a season of buying luxuries? And so we're being warned now, if you want those luxuries, buy them now because they're not going to be available in December. Now you might read this and think, well, what's the big deal with her? There's no way that I'd ever be enticed by her. She's awful. She's abominable. It's so obvious that she is the enemy. So why would I be even tempted by her? You might read it and think all her fine clothes and jewels and golden cup They're like putting a nice throw pillow on the electric chair or like putting up Christmas lights in a prison cell. Not going to fall for that. The only thing is, that's the great surprise of chapter 17. That in one way or another, we've all been enticed by her. Look at where she's sitting in verse 15 of chapter 17. Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are people's nations and languages. In other words, what that's saying is her influence is everywhere. That's where she's sitting. She's sitting on the waters. She influences every people and nation and language. That there's no escaping the influence of Babylon, no matter what city you live in. And so, by the way, you could look at a city like Los Angeles and 
and read this and think, well, that's Babylon, so I should run. I should flee. You can run from the city, but what this says is she's wherever you have to go, wherever you choose to go. So you can run to the city, you can run from the city. Either way, she's there. But then also notice back in verse two, not only is she intoxicated, but it says the people of the earth are intoxicated with her. And so there's no escaping her. She's everywhere. She's alluring. She's intoxicating. And so here's what this is saying. It's saying that we've all, we've all drunk from her golden cup. We're intoxicated with her. The profit, luxury, the pleasure of pornography, the excitement of a night out, they're all so alluring, so intoxicating. But just take a step back for a minute and look at what it brings us. Because it doesn't deliver what we hoped. And what has drinking from the cup brought us but massive inequality and injustice, right? We have luxury here, but the places that make our luxuries are, are being taken advantage of. And those who have the luxuries Actually, all it leads to is an overwhelming lack of satisfaction in life. Well, it doesn't end well for this astonishingly attractive woman. And that's what we learn in chapter 18. In verse 2, the angel proclaims, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And that these words were unthinkable. Now, the original readers, as, as uh, this talks about Babylon, they're thinking about the great society of Rome and the great city of Rome. And so for them, Babylon was Rome, and so the idea that someplace like Rome would fall is unthinkable. In the same way, the idea that, you know, American society might fall, that's unthinkable to us. But chapter 18, verse 21 that a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. So that's the picture here. Is that wherever there is Babylon, it will come crashing down. And so what do we do about that? How do we escape the destruction of Babylon? How do we escape the cup that we're drinking from. Well, the next chapter, chapter 18, actually tells us exactly what we're supposed to do. Isn't that great? And so here's point number two. It's, so for point one is who is the woman? Point number two is to come out of her, come out of that city. Verse four says, come out of her, my people. But come on, why? Why should we come out of her? When we live in Babylon, when we buy into her, we're intoxicated with her beauty and her luxuries. Like we get it all. We get everything. All her glorious luxuries, the fine clothes, the well-appointed houses, hour after hour of pleasure and enjoyment. Why come out of her? Why give that up? Because verse four continues, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. In other words, come out of her because you'll be ruined along with her. And notice how you'll be ruined. You'll be ruined in two ways. You'll be ruined spiritually and you'll be ruined physically. You can't separate the two. 
the Lord says to come out of her so that you will not share in her sins. In other words, you won't be ruined spiritually, but also come out of her so that you not receive any of her plagues. In other words, be ruined physically. And so Babylon ruins us both spiritually and physically. And so what does it mean to come out of Babylon? What does that actually look like? Well, we get a picture of that by looking at those who were most devastated by Babylon's fall. The most devastated in chapter 18 are the kings, the merchants, and the sailors. Uh, So look at the kings in verse 9. It says, they will weep and mourn over her. Then the merchants in chapter 18, verse 11, will weep and mourn. And then the sailors get into it in verses 17 to 19. And so like this is, you know, it just continues to build and build and build. You have kings and then the wealthy and then the workaday person. And in verse 19, they throw dust on their heads and cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour, she has been brought to ruin. And you might think that this, uh, this mourning is for compassion. You might think they're, they're having compassion on the city, but, but listen, not one tear here is shed for sympathy. It's all a self-centered lament. It seems that all these kings and merchants and sailors can think of is the self-centered loss of their economic power and of their luxuries. And so what that means is to come out of Babylon seems to have something to do with turning away the self-centered focus that brings you luxury and wealth at the expense of other people. And just think about it. Doesn't a self-centered society obsessed with gaining luxury and wealth, doesn't that, doesn't that sound familiar to you? Doesn't that sound like our society today? And so how do you come out of that kind of a system? How do you come out of a way of living that is everywhere, knowing that you can't run from it? Because wherever you go, there it is. Well, it means taking the opposite approach to life than the kings and the merchants and the sailors. And so instead of putting everyone else at a disadvantage to you, you become willing to disadvantage yourself for the sake of others. Uh, This past week, a friend of mine who was a philosophy major in college, he showed me how the ancient Greeks thought about pleasure and how to find lasting pleasures. So it looks like this. It's it's sort of on a, a pyramid. He calls it the pyramid of pleasure. And at the bottom, which is the sort of easiest uh, to get, is physical pleasure. Um, but then he said, well, think about it. How, how long does a, a really good meal last? How long does the pleasure from that really good meal last? You know, as soon as you're hungry for the next one. I mean, you might get to extend it if there's, you know, you burp a little bit. But it's, it only lasts until you're hungry for the next one. Or think of sex. Or think of any kind of physical pleasure, relaxation, whatever it is, it only lasts until the longing for the next one comes along. So that's the least amount of pleasure that you're going to get. Uh, Then he said comes the mind. And so you can learn something new or you can entertain yourself with something. But not too long after that comes boredom. You need something new to entertain the mind. And so that might last a little bit longer than the physical pleasure, but not much longer. Um... Then, he said, comes the spirit. And we're getting near the top of the pyramid, that if you can find spiritual pleasure, this is now getting into the kind of pleasure that lasts. 
But there's actually one more. Do you know what goes up at the top? I was shocked by this. The, the ancient Greeks thought of this. Do you know what goes up there? Giving. Giving goes on the top. That being generous rather than being greedy, giving rather than receiving, the ancient Greeks actually said this is the pinnacle of pleasure. Now, for Christians, we would actually say that these two things go together. But, you know, in our society, our culture, we would invert this the other way around, wouldn't we? But for Christians, we would actually say the top two go together. Because right at the very center of what a Christian believes, right at the center of Christianity, is a God who is the most generous giver of all time. That God, by the way, is the one who's quoted as saying it this way in Acts chapter 20, when he said, what he's quoted as saying, is more blessed to give than to receive. And so how do you come out of Babylon? You learn that it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed to give hospitality than to receive hospitality. In other words, begin to live in such a way that you're willing to disadvantage yourself for the sake of others. And then you'll be free from Babylon's alluring. She'll no longer intoxicate you. Uh, listen, I know you're probably not wealthy. You're probably not a millionaire. I mean, maybe there's a secret millionaire here. I don't know. I know that there are likely some sitting in this room that are in debt. And if you're not, I know that probably there are many who are living paycheck to paycheck. And so how do, you, how do you do this when you're like that? Well, here's a definition of generosity that I think will help. Generosity is giving the best of what I have to others, expecting nothing in return. So it doesn't mean I have to give the most expensive thing. It just means I give the best of what I have. I give the best out of what God has given me to others, and I expect nothing in return. This is how we come out of Babylon. This is the opposite thinking to the kings and the merchants and the sailors who were lamenting over the loss of their luxuries. This is how we come out of Babylon. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, I've tried to make that sort of generosity sound easy, but I promise it's not. And so how do you have the strength to be that generous? How do you have the strength to give the best of what you have and expect nothing in return? Well, that's chapter 19. The only way to really find the lasting strength to come out of Babylon is to come first to Jesus Christ. And look, I know he's not impressive at first, especially not compared to Babylon, because Babylon is this alluring, beautiful woman dressed in fine clothes, covered in jewelry. And in this passage, when you first meet Jesus, back in chapter 17, he's described as a lamb. So you have, you know, beautiful woman, you know, on the red carpet and a lamb. Um, and by the way, the, the beautiful woman, it says that um, she's got power. She's riding on, on this beast. Do you remember the beast from the earlier chapters? Well, she's, she's riding on top of this beast that has seven heads and ten crowns. And then, and then there's a lamb. And in comparison, the lamb seems so um, unimpressive. 
But this is not an, any ordinary lamb because in, uh, look back at chapter 17, verse 14. They will wage war against the lamb. But the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. It says that this lamb, this unimpressive lamb, is actually the Lord of lords and king of kings. And when we meet him again in this passage, after we've looked at the fall of Babylon, when we meet him again, he's the great victor. The underdog, the one no one on earth expected to win, becomes the victor. And actually, as you read this, it's, it's amazing. The battle looks tight. The woman and the beast, they're making their blows, but, but we don't need to fear them. We don't need to turn to them. We don't need to trust them. Because of the Lamb who is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, he actually carries with him his called, chosen, and faithful followers. And go over to that chapter, chapter 19. We meet him again in verse 11. I'm going to read this to you again. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages wars. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. Not just ten, but many. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Look, it describes how he's dressed now. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is not Babylon, the great. His name is the word of God. And the woman and the, the beast, they may be amassing an army, but verse 14, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And again, the picture there is that with just a word, the massive armies are coming together and just with a word coming out of his mouth, he defeats them. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh has his name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so he's a glorious king. He's a victorious king. He is the one who's stunning to look at, the most stunning to look at. Superior in every way to Babylon, the great prostitute, and the beast that she rides on. And yet, what do we know about the great king of kings? The one who has every advantage. What do we know about him? The great king of kings, Jesus Christ, disadvantaged himself for our sakes. He found it more blessed to give than to receive because he is also the lamb. Earlier in Revelation chapter five, the lamb, Jesus Christ, is described this way. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. And so the picture there is Jesus Christ as the great sacrificial lamb. Jesus Christ, who is completely, utterly glorious. He left heaven. And he becomes a lamb. 
Jesus Christ, who is completely without sin, who never did anything unjust, never said any wrong words, never thought any impure thoughts. He is the lamb who was slain. He, the Lord of lords and king of kings. He, though he had, has every advantage, puts himself at the greatest of all disadvantages when he died on the cross to take the penalty for our sins. And so do you see what's going on here? Are you putting all of this together? Babylon was crushed. Babylon was devoured for her own sins, but Jesus Christ, who had no sins, he was devoured for yours. He was crushed for yours. And though he was crushed, though he was slain, what we find out is that God raised him up and exalted him. He gave him the name that is above every name. And so what we see at the end of time is him being highly exalted. Look back at chapter 19, verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting. And here it is. This is the fourth of the four hallelujahs. Hallelujah for our Lord God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. The fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. And so Jesus Christ, the Lord of lords, the king of kings, the highly exalted one, he is inviting you to his wedding to be his bride. And this is, there's an amazing contrast happening here. Back in, in Babylon, back in chapter 18, there's actually this cry that goes out of never again, never again, never again, never again. Look at it, chapter 18, verse 22. As Babylon is destroyed, here's how it describes, here's how it describes this destroyed city. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of the bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Never again will there be music. Never again will there be productive work. Never again will there be light. And never again will there be a wedding in Babylon. All is lost. And so despite how glorious it looks today, one day what this is saying is that all is lost. As never again will there be the joy of a wedding in Babylon. But for those who come out of her, for those who come to Jesus Christ, there will be a great wedding. There will be great rejoicing and wonderful music and feasting. That's the picture. And oh, that you would come out of her and come to Christ. And so how do you do that? Well, for some of you, that means maybe for the first time. And the way that you come to Jesus Christ is by simply saying, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Please forgive me of my sins and come into my life. Some of you are Christians already, and maybe you've been Christians for years. Since childhood, even. But you're living in Babylon. Maybe you're 
Sure, maybe during the day you're living in Zion, God's city, but maybe at night you're in Babylon, or maybe it's the other way around. You're drinking her cup one way or another. And maybe for you, you need to repent. Repent from always seeking the next edge, the next advantage, so your life can be more luxurious. Repent from seeking the pleasures of Babylon. And instead become like Jesus Christ, putting yourself at a disadvantage for the sake of others. And so if you're a Christian, maybe this needs to affect how you view your career or how you view our city or how you view marriage or how you view your money. Whatever it is, come out of her and come to Christ by being like him, by putting yourself at a disadvantage for the sake of others. Listen, I realize that when compared with the world around us and all the ways that you can gain strength and power and advantage that worshiping Christ, giving to others, disadvantaging yourself for the sake of others, it looks weak and it looks inconsequential. But remember that from heaven's perspective, there's nothing that we can do that has more powerful effect in heaven and on the earth than to worship and to give for the sake of others. And as we come to this, to the end, as we come to the the completion of time, what Revelation shows us is that only those who are, only those who come out of Babylon get to rejoice. Only those who come out of Babylon will sing again. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the challenge of it. We thank you for how difficult it is actually to receive But Lord, I pray that you would help each of us to come out of Babylon. Help us to come to Christ. That in him we would find glory and power and strength. That we would be worshipers of him. And we ask it all in his name. Amen.